You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a panel from Transnational Humanities, Concept and Praxis, the 2021 UCD Humanities Institute PhD Conference. This online conference took place on the 19th of February. This podcast features panel two, Space, Place and Materiality. The speakers in this panel were Bernadette Fox from University College Dublin, who presented on Samuel Beckett's Transnationalism, the ebb and flow of seascapes, simultaneously local and global, Chris McCann from NUI Galway presented on Pavarotti's Shannon's World Tour, Music, Place Time and Transnational Cultural Exchange in Irish Prose Literature. The panel was chaired by Suchismita Dettagupta from University College Dublin. We f- begin with Bernadette Fox. Bernadette is a third-year PhD scholar at University College Dublin. Her research is embedded in close readings of Beckett's seascapes informed by a blending of practical nautical knowledge and personal familiarity with the locale of Beckett's youth, that is in Ireland and Dublin. A passionate sailor with extensive coastal and offshore experience, Bernadette uh, explores Beckett's seascapes through a personal lens. Okay, I'd like to extend my thanks to the organizing committee. My thanks also to my supervisor, Professor John Brannigan. So my topic is Samuel Beckett's transnationalism, the ebb and flow of seascapes, simultaneously local and global. While Stephen Vertovach in his introduction to transnationalism notes that transnationalism is a manifestation of globalization, it is the opening line of his publisher's blurb that interests me. This begins with, quote, transnationalism refers to multiple ties and interactions linking people or institutions across the borders of nation states. It is this notion of multiple ties and interactions crossing borders that I would like to explore in just one of Beckett's seascapes. To do this, it is necessary to consider not simply the author Beckett, but also ourselves as readers, as representing non-state actors. My research, as mentioned earlier, is informed by my personal response to the seascapes depicted in his works, that are in turn informed by Beckett's youth, predominantly the region around Dublin Bay. Others, such as Owen O'Brien in the Beckett country, have noticed this marine presence as he maps locations to quotations alongside detailed biographical information. However, O'Brien does not definitively identify my selected seascape. However, although many of Beckett's seascapes have been identified, there is a critical need to think about what this engagement with place means from an environmental humanities perspective. This is important because the environment that we live in that surrounds us, and that includes our seascapes, matters. Leaving aside for another day any discourse associated with the current environmental crisis, cultural responses to the environment, in this case a textual seascape, can be explored for possible insights. In particular, by invoking a new materialist reading of Beckett's seascapes, I can tease out the traditional positioning of nature v. culture within his text, which in turn invites the reader to reconsider the seascape or environment that they encounter in reality. While my overall research project involves readings Beckett seascapes as having material agency, either within individual texts or even across Azul, for today, I'll narrow the focus 
ultimately just to one single word. Today I will read one short paragraph in Malloy, which depicts the littoral environment around the town he ultimately renames as Bally-on-Sea. Malloy is the first of Beckett's trilogy of Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable, which were originally written in French between 1947 and 1950. This English publication I'm working with was originally published in 1955. I'll read the quote. But the principal beauty of this region was a kind of strangled creek within which the slow grey tides emptied and filled, emptied and filled. And the people came flocking from the town, unromantic people, to admire this spectacle. Some said there's nothing more beautiful than these wet sands. Others, high tide is the best time to see the creek of Baliba. How lovely then, that leaden water, you would swear it was stagnant, if you did not know it was not. And yet others held it was like an underground lake. But all were agreed, like the inhabitants of Blackpool, that their town was on the sea. And they had Bally on Sea printed on their notepaper. I recognise or respond to this place as broad meadows near Malahide in North County Dublin. Yet again, there's also a strong frisian of recognition with Buddhistan Marsh near Blackrock in South County Dublin. Both locations appear to be separate, separated from the sea, and yet they're tidal sites. That is, the sea floods and empties the area twice a day without fail. In an interview with Lawrence Harvey, Beckett himself commented that, quote, work does not depend on experience, not a record of experience, but of course you use it, end quote. Indeed, this type of seascape occurs in many locations around the world, such as in Shoreham-by-Sea in West Sussex, England, to name just one location outside of Ireland. Is it possible to argue that Beckett's seascape, which to me instinctively feels like a local site, is also a global seascape? After all, the ebb and flow of tides is a twice-daily global phenomena, powered by the gravitational pull of the sun and moon on the Earth's seas and oceans. This therefore enables Beckett's seascapes to be universally understood by other, other coastal communities or individuals. They're globally separated, but locally familiar with their local environment. But again, I question, is this enough to argue for Beckett's transnationalism? In my close reading of this seascape, I focus on three elements. The action of the tidal flow, that this is a spectacle that people flock to see, and the adoption of this natural phenomena in the renaming of the town. In this seascape, Beckett not only explores his local space and place, or at the very least leverages his familiarity with Dublin-based seascapes, but in a new materialist reading, I argue that the text expands outward to embrace a global discourse related to our place in the environment. But again, I ask the question, will this reading of a seascape be enough to talk about Beckett's transnationalism? New materialism, with its focus on breaking the cultural nature dichotomy, challenges the traditional assumptions of non-human agency within our environment. And here I'm thinking of Alamo, Barad, Bennett and Haraway. In particular, Karen Barad makes the case for an expanded understanding of agency, explaining it as, quote, it is doing or being in its interactivity, end quote. As a result, fighting Barad, I argue that the sea demonstrates its agency through its doing, i.e. the twice daily tidal action, or as Beckett writes, quote, the slow grey tides, emptied and filled, emptied and filled, end quote. The repetition of the phrasing in emptied and filled, emptied and filled, reenacts and reinforces the twice daily action that occurs in reality 
along all our seashores. But is this simultaneous local and global action sufficient to support a transnational reading of Samuel Beckett, the Irish or French or British or European or global writer? Continuing with my new materialist reading, Beckett writes, quote, the people came flocking from the town to admire this spectacle, end quote. And in their travel or movement, the townsfolk also display agency as they are doing to return to Barad's term. Yet Barad further defines agency as requiring interactivity in the doing or being. I read this interactivity as occurring between the people who travel out of their town to view the principal beauty of this region and the sea which provides the tidal effect of ebb and flow. Many of us would be familiar with the image of people stopping to view the spectacle of the sea from promenading the pier on a sunny afternoon to walking the beach at low water to flocking to the coast to view a storm crashing on shore. These images may be local, but they also represent a response that occurs around the world. For example, here we have somewhere inviting from somewhere around the world with fabulous weather. Less inviting, but closer to home, Salt Hill Promenade during the storm or Hurricane Ophelia in 2017, yet another time when we were asked to stay at home. Nevertheless, both images highlight that we respond and engage with the environment that surrounds us, such as either the benign and or threatening seascapes like depicted here. Beckett also presents this emotional response to our environments within his text, which is represented by the townsfolk who walk to view the site and their ultimate renaming of the town. But the stimulus to action is varied. It is the, quote, beautiful wet sands. For others, high tide is the best time, end quote. While some respond to the apparently negative image of, quote, leaden water, you would swear it was stagnant, end quote. Thus, we can argue that Beckett is responding to the seascape as an effective environment, a stimulus to, or projection of emotions. However, as a seascape, it can be read both locally and globally. But returning to a new materialist reading also allows for an interrogation of the traditional binary separation of nature culture, human, non-human. In the text, culture is here represented by the townsfolk responding to nature represented by the sea. The dynamics of interactivity are demonstrated by the former walking and the latter's tidal ebb and flow. It matters not that this could be a local Irish seascape as suggested by Beckett's use of the name Valley on Sea. This response could take place anywhere around the world where the sea and town are adjacent. Indeed, the text itself cites Blackpool, a Victorian seaside town on the west coast of England. But again, is this new materialist reading enough to argue for Beckett's transnationalism? I argue that Beckett's transnationalism is more clearly read in his use of the town name Bally-on-Sea. When the townsfolk rename their town to Bally-on-Sea, we understand this renaming as an example of Barad's interactivity. While at first glance it appears that the townsfolk are claiming nature for themselves in an intrapocenic manner, it can also be argued that the natural environment, in this case the seascape, is agental as it acts upon the town and its inhabitants inhabitants. To be clear, it is the tidal action that changes the behaviour of the townsfolk rather than the action of the people changing the behaviour of the tide. However, even as the locals attempt to rename their town, 
all Beckett's text allows them to do is to print a name on paper, and even that renaming can be scrutinised. Irish readers will instantly understand that Bally on Sea actually means town on sea, since Bally is an Irish English corruption of Bolia, the Irish or Gaelic word for town. This is a historically loaded language intrusion into the name of one place within Beckett's writing. Briefly, the name Bally on Sea can now be read to contain echoes of over 750 years of British colonial rule, the suppression of the Irish language and the official renaming of Irish place names into English, formalised with the first survey of Ireland by the British Ordnance Survey in 1824. This laden intrusion is heightened when allied with an understanding that the town a town on sea has a very different meaning from town by the sea. The latter solely indicates location, while the former includes the added notion of dominance or power. Thus, the interactivity within the text, symbolised by Bali on sea, can now be read as a form of colonialisation of the sea by the townsfolk. This discourse of colonialisation is signalled repeatedly and thus reinforced in this brief seascape by the pretentious notion or the right to claim ownership of the sea by the townsfolk, by the actual process of renaming the town, by the physical and repeated journeying to the seascape, and finally, by invoking a language corruption in the renaming process. But there is more. On sea has its own loaded meaning within English culture. It invokes the traditional seascape, seaside town, the Victorian pier promenade, the town turned towards the sea, initially to provide Sea air or sea bath health cures, later expanded into forms of entertainment for day trippers or holidaymakers. It recalls the high days of Southend on Sea, Clacton on Sea, or as Beckett writes, Blackpool. The fact that Beckett cites Blackpool and not XYZ on Sea is even more interesting when one understands that Dublin, the current name of our capital city, and Beckett's birthplace, is an English corruption of Dublin, which translates as Blackpool. Dublin being the location where Vikings almost 12 centuries ago harboured their ships, set up a trading base and formed the foundations of the current city of Dublin. The discourse around Bally Sea now opens up to expand the cultural and national boundaries, not just in space and place, but also over time, over centuries in fact. Thus what seems like a simple renaming of a town within Beckett's text is unlocked when invoking a new materialist reading of the seascape. As space and place can be simultaneously read as local and global within this seascape, with just one single word, Bally on Sea, cultural and national boundaries, borders are crossed and recrossed. The Irish Sea as a physical space is repeatedly traversed, but the result of the multi multicultural national intersections, such as England v Ireland, Ireland as a British colonial space, Ireland as a young independent nation, as a pre-nation at the time of the Vikings' arrival, Viking conquest. This multi-directional interrogation of identity in place suggested by Beckett's choice of town name highlights how identity and culture can be teased out to great effect within a materialist close reading of the seascapes. I believe this more clearly demonstrates Beckett's transnationalism as written within his works as he wrote across cultural and national boundaries from both within and without his own complex cultural space. It is transnationalism quote, as reconstruction of place or locality, end quote, to use Vertuvac's expression. Thank you. Thank you, Bernadette. Uh, we're now going to move to Christopher McCann. 
Christopher is a final year doctoral student at the National University of Ireland Galway in the School of English and Creative Arts. His research project, which is supported by the Irish Research Council Postgraduate Award, analyzes the role of music as a device for the creation and deconstruction of social hierarchies within Irish prose literature of the 20th century. The project examines authors writing in both English and Irish. Uh, thank you very much. So today I'll be talking about um, Mihola Keneally's 1999 novel, which uh, amongst the men. Um, but I'll also be making reference to other um, literary sources. Um, and I'll be talking about music and transnational exchange. So this novel, uh, Snaffer, is the building's Roman of John Paul, a young gay man from Connemara who's making his way in the world and negotiating various um, spaces of age, of youth, of, um, of various cultures, um, including um, his own sexuality within that. Maureen McCohen has uh, written quite... Uh, powerfully of the symbolism of Sean notes or, or traditional Irish singing in, in his character. So um, what I want to instead focus on today is the other major character in that uh, novel, which is Johnny Rua Flaherty, He's an old Sean notes singer. Um, and there's a, he, there's a particular disjointed performance of the famous Sean notes song, Aron Vincher, um, and that provides the nexus for exploring Ireland's and Connemara's complex position in, in dialectics of centre, periphery, local, global, tradition, modernity. Um, the concept I want to start with here is the idea of ontopology, which is uh, what Derrida, Jacques Derrida calls an axiomatics linking indissociably the ontological value of existence to the stable and presentable determination of a locality, the topos of territory, native soil, city, body in general. And uh, at an ideological level, these geographies represent what he calls a conceptual phantasm of community. And this sort of idea uh, you know, encapsulates Irish nationalist ideology, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, where you know, the unspoiled rural West, such as in that picture there, you know, most, in, most embodies this ontopology, this Irish idea. And this schema entwines landscape, agriculture, and the perception of a centuries-old unbroken cultural tradition with Shamnos uh, singing at its core. But of course, this is often at the expense of you know, resources and, and development for local people in, in uh, rural communities. So as a result, drawing on uh, uh, Bakhtin's theory, Jip Learson has characterised Ireland in 1996 as a place with an uneven distribution of time passage where time is apt to slow down and come to standstill at the periphery. And this is what he calls Ireland as chronotope. And this is sort of the idea that uh, reflects and sustains dominant ideas of the rural Irish West. But of course, as, as technology has become more ubiquitous in the last sort of uh, 70 to 80 years, communication and performance contexts have arisen that radically alter structures of time, space and place. As uh, Giddens observes, under conditions of modernity, place becomes increasingly phantasmagoric. That is to say, locales are thoroughly penetrated by and shaped in terms of social influences quite distant from them. And as a multivalent textual form, music has a special power to organise or disrupt the perception of experiential space-time. And as we'll see in Snafira, the combination of these factors um, acts to reverse this uh, paradigm of Ireland as chronotope that Learson uh, describes. So in Snafer, uh, the, important, uh, the most important scene in this respect takes place in a packed local pub while all the locals in Kerr and Glock, uh, 
um, the town of the, uh, the, the quarter of the stone, the stony quarter, uh, trying to watch a football match from England. And Johnny Ruhr is a, this traditional singer, is drunkenly attempting to sing Shan No songs over the din of the television and over the people, other people in the pub. And this frustrates everyone else. And so they employ interesting strategies to try and get him to be quiet. A young man called John Paul Donacher calls to Johnny Rule and he attempts him to be quiet by shouting, Ta and Eurovision heart the shaft in the Johnny Biggest new way to end voting and show creator. So the Eurovision is a week over, you won't get any votes here. And they, uh, the men in the pub continue with this joke. Um, and John Paul Donacher calls out, and next, representing Ireland all the way from the beautiful, picturesque village of Coronavoc in the heart of the Connemara Girl The final contender in this year's Eurovision, please welcome Johnny Rua Flaherty. Current John Paul Donacher cannot erfain or no sligan ergo will she turn three billion dinner three microphones. So he pretends in, in this pub that he's now hosting Eurovision. And in kind of this, uh, linguistic kind of uh, pastiche in Franglish says Johnny Roy du point Johnny Roy Sanquois. Where at first Johnny Roy, you know, is supposed to be getting no votes and this is not a performance space for him. Suddenly he's being parodied live on television receiving votes. From a practical point of view, this allows the other men who are trying to watch the football to narrativize their situation by imagining Johnny Ruwer to exist outside of present time and space. But at a deeper level, John Paul Donacher's Eurovision parody reverses Irish chronotopes by swapping the poles of centre and periphery, thrusting Shan Nose and the Western rural ontopology into the European industrial modern, establishing the, simultaneously the modern credentials of his own rural community. But this is something that has been uh, you know, used before as uh, in, uh, to do with Ireland and Eurovision. Uh, for example, when Celine Dion represented Switzerland in 1988, she was pictured in her postcard of uh, Eurovision postcard on the back of a truck in a bog in the Midlands, um, which is, uh, of course, got its own um, contradictions. So from this, the other men in the pub, you know, they, they continue the schema when they imagine a different kind of music. Um, and this time it's bel canto opera personified by the tenor Luciano Pavarotti. And so they jokingly imagine an alternate reality where Johnny Rua goes on a world tour with Pavarotti. They say, Jacobadan Shaw or Scallion MTV Eid, the Achlegan Morhuis and Shin, also Gion, I guess, Brannel and Noah's Foreign. So we'd see them on the TV screen, on an MTV screen, looking down at us. And Mudjian Shaw, like, wave all suicide. He then says, Crocs suicide, Johnny Rua, Crocs suicide, two Phoenix, Pavarotti, duet, Anish. So singing, imagine, they're imagining him singing a duet with Luciano Pavarotti. And what this does is imagines a spatial, temporal, social hierarchy in which Eurovision and Pavarotti and the Pavarotti World Tour are things that sort of take place out there in Europe in both space and time, but again, are also irrevocably infused into their own space. And this, the modernist embodiment of multiple chronotopes here is especially significant because of the meaning that one of, of the songs that Johnny Ruhr tries to sing in the pub, and that's Aron Wincher. And it's one of the most famous Shano songs in, in the canon, um, written in the 19th century. It's the uh, deathbed last will and testament in song form of Moira Nicloherty, who lived in, um, who was born and raised in Moynish. And that's what Aron Wincher means. It's the song of Moynish. Um, it's near Karna in County Galway. 
she subsequently married and moved and lived with her husband in neighbouring Lepicala. In the last in the last stanza on her deathbed, she implores to be taken back to uh, Moinish to be buried with her people, where she'll be keen beautifully, light on the sanders, where there she will not be lonely. Because of this clear desire of return and home, and um, particularly given the central place that emigration has in Irish culture, uh, this song is this song's popularity is strongly linked here. And Lilith O'Leary has uh, this traditional singer and, and scholar at in New York, Galway has described the song as an iconic cultural object of the present day, but also one of transnational cultural importance. So even though it describes a very local place in Galway, um, he sees that the spread of its renown in recent decades is in large part due to the influence of technology and broadcasting. Indeed, if, if you go to the Tijikahara Sean Nose uh, website, you'll see that there are currently nine recorded live versions of the song accessible for free anywhere in the world. And he argues, Allura argues that this has enabled Oren Wencher to overcome the fetters of locality and stand metaphorically for any place of heritage. And this is important in a globalised, technological, increasingly placially disembodied world where local heritage has increased power as a symbolic or a nostalgic praxis stemming from the desire for rootedness. This is certainly what's happening for Johnny Ruer, who at the end of his life is suffering from what Elvin uh, Toffler calls future shock, um, the world is moving too fast around him. There is too much technology and he seeks rootedness in locality and his tradition. But the irony here is that Johnny Ruhr has his own relationship with technology. He's appeared multiple times at Unterruptus. He's appeared on the radio and he's made records. And later in the uh, novel, one of his records that he made years earlier is unearthed. And on the cover, uh, it says, Johnny Ruhr O'Flaherta, Illiterata Mora, Donna Dova, big bold black letters, and it's macaronic, it's in Irish and in English, and a big mugshot of his grin, a mugshot Morados stress, are included. So uh, we have here this kind of uh, almost stereotypical image of the, the um, you know, the Irish language singer um, from the middle of the 20th century, and with no disrespect to, to Joe Heaney, perhaps the most famous of them all, uh, I think that cover there uh, provides a very good example of this kind of thing. And although uh, album covers like this provide uh, a visual and textual representation of place within tradition, sometimes this replicates on topologies or conceptual phantasms in order to provide rootedness in a global market. Um, and here, again, we have this, if it's the costume, if you will, of the performer. But as we'll see here, uh, this is not confined to Irish music. So on the left is Unwell Wan, which is, uh, again, another example of that by Shauna Conacher, who is another um, Connemara singer. And on the right, Osole Mio, the favourite Italian songs by Luciano Pavarotti. And what's going on here is very similar. You have the, the, um, the performer kind of in their quote-unquote natural habitat, which is on the left, the, the stony clods of Connacht, uh, you know, this, this rural ontopology. Pardon me. And on the right, we have Pavarotti in what looks like somewhere in the Amalfi Coast. So um, the, the other thing worth noting is that uh, the first commercial recording of Aaron uh, Wencher was on this album on the left by Sean O'Connor. So with this, just as we can imagine Johnny Ruhr sharing a stage with Pavarotti, we can picture Pavarotti in costume singing Sean Nose and Connemara, just like we can see Celine Dion singing her song in French in the back of the tractor in a bog. 
And these tropes, when they're successful, can have flow-on effects for local communities. As Thacker observes in Karana, the success of Sean Chanos singers from that area has brought funding and international tourism that can be beneficial to the local economy. But it can sort of lose its uh, authenticity, however problematic that word is. And I'm thinking here of the way that uh, certain songs have taken advantage of that, notably Les Lacs de Connemara, the famous French song by Michel Sardou, who wrote a song about a beautiful tour of Connemara. It's a famous French song, um, you know, full of climactic moments. And he talks about land burned by winds, stone heaths, uh, you know, the hell of Connemara, black clouds, the lands, the lakes, the scenery. Um, Michel Sardou ne has ne never went to Connemara. One of the first times he ever went was when he was given the freedom of Connemara, which enables him to graze his sheep on the mountains. He read a tourist guide and, and wrote the song. Uh, having never been there. And um, so Thacker describes this problematic nature as doing little to dispel the image of these places like Connemara as quote unquote traditional or authentic, places that in her words can satisfy the nostalgic longings of American tourists in search of their ancestral homes, or I dare say French tourists as I actually encountered myself working as a hotel receptionist in Galway. Many of them came to Connemara just because of this song. In Snafera, the men actually make fun of this. After imagining the, uh, the world tour with Pavarotti, they, um, they joke that took a slur a tour story with Karen Leglock, a brand new Aaron Ott, a crowd of tourists will come to Karen Leglock looking for the place he was born. Um, but of course, this is disingenuous. And what it neglects is that Irish traditional music, including song, is very dynamic and adaptive. Um, you know, as uh, Lilith Alira has pointed out, and as far back as Martin Ekayan in the middle of the century. So let's return to Oren Boincha to talk about this. Um, so a good example of this is the, um, the local musician, John Bjog of Flaherta, whose repertoire includes Charnos that is influenced by country and Western, country and Western influenced by Charnos and every genre in between. And he's recorded a version of Oren Boincha in, in sort of what's called the Irish country style. Um, and uh, Thacker says that, this John Gilg performs Oren Boinche in this diverse mix of repertoire, which links local music practices with the international popularity of country music in and various performance venues and pubs in Connemara. But this is a reflection of the modern Connemara. Even though it was only it was in 1993 he wrote this, Michal Canela, who wrote an affair, said, "It's Connemara the Hino Ella Erfadatagunanish." So we have a different kind of Connemara. Altogether, it's the Connemara of disco, rock and roll, country and western, Walkman, karaoke, nightclubs, potholes, mobile homes, videos, cable links, sky, satellites, Connemara, home and away, I guess, Connor Nation Street, Connemara of bingo, lotteries, Coca Cola, hotels, chippers, microwave, and the mud wrestlers, I guess, and Sunday world. And at the end, he says, Show or show it or Connemara and Connemara atar, who is stuck, I guess, on the Kulala. This is our Connemara, the Connemara, which is being absorbed in and breathed by us every day. And this is indeed what we see in Snafir, where in the pub, Johnny Ruiz singing is compared to karaoke and bad country and Western. So to conclude, um, this is a Connemara that, uh, where conceptual phantasms of community no longer rely on outdated anthropologies. Uh, it, its anthropology extends outwards to England, to Italy, to France, to America. And it also receives those cultures in exchange, as we saw with, um, uh, with Les Lux de Connemara. In a literary sense, 
the use of these musical devices is not recent, and as I've got there, Ulysses, not to fall into the trap of suggesting some quintessential literary inheritance. But if but Joyce demonstrated 20th century, early 20th century Dublin modernism by juxtaposing Flotov's opera Martha with the night 1798 rebellion ballad Croppy Boy, and also by painting the citizen as the Irish Caruso Garibaldi in Cyclops. And we see that same kind of uh, exchange in stuff here. But what O'Connelly's use of these terms and musical devices in Stafira does is juxtaposes the traditional with the modern, the rural with the continental European, demonstrates the dynamism of rural areas like Connemara and the traditional practices that represent both continuity and adaptation. And in this respect, it's an example of Laurie Honko's concept of the second life of folklore, where using traditional material in radically displaced social and cultural contexts permits a new understanding of the material and its meaning. And this provides space to foreground a reorienting of the Irish chronotype in the modern transnational world. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.